My name is Dawn, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. And I want to thank the committee and Harlan and Zan for allowing me to come back. My children said, why did they ask you to come back? I said, well, maybe this time you'd get it right, you know. <laughs> and I'm so privileged to be here with Teresa and, and with Stephanie, who are the loves of my life, you know, who have transformed me and changed me on the journey. You know, I'm so grateful for that. And Harlan and that kind of introduction this morning, you know, kind of like, <laughs> come on, who are we talking about? You know, there's another way to get people to come back to an al meeting. We don't have to lie. It's not that I'm not, <laughs> it's not that God hasn't gifted me with certain gifts and trying to share the message, you know. But uh, I've heard some much better speakers than myself, you know. And uh, the way God has always kept me in my place, I was speaking somewhere, and I, for some moment, you know, I had this, I had I'd gone in, and I, and I really thought I looked nice, okay? I'm 77, so when I think I look nice, that's pretty good, you know? So, <laughs> so, so I walked in, and I sat down in one of the back seats, and I sat on, somebody had had, had chocolate on the seat, so I had this great big black spot on the back of me. And so I said, oh, that's all right. People are just going to be looking at the front of me. So as I began to walk down to the podium, I walked out of my slip. <laughs> then I got up to the podium, and I put my water glass here, and it fell all over me. You know, talk about deflation of ego at depth. And then, and then that evening, when um, one of my dear friends who was a speaker was talking, and he put on the tape, he said, well, I hope I'm almost the same age as Dawn. I hope I don't pee on myself like she did. And I said, oh, God, that's going out on a tape somewhere. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I know that maybe incontinency is coming, but not quite yet. And I don't want to do it in front of you. You know what I'm saying? I, I got some, some things I don't want to do, you know. I'm so grateful to be here. You know, at this point, I'm grateful to be anywhere, but I'm really grateful. <laughs> I'm grateful to be here. I, I... I really do depend on people like Teresa and on Stephanie to tell me Dawn's time to sit down, you know. Because sometimes I'm going in this direction and I forget what direction I'm going in. So I say, if I'm on a segue over here, I'm going to depend on you to get me back where I started. Because, you know, I, this is my 50th year in the program. It'll be 51 years. <laughs> I ought to have something right by now. I went to a meeting the other day. It's been a couple of years ago, but I say the other day. I have no contract of time. And, and uh, one of the young women said, how long have you, oh, she said, are you new? And I said, oh, no, honey, I've been here a long time. She said, how long have you been here? And I said, oh, it's been about 45 years at that point. She said, you must have really been sick. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I thought about that. She was right. You know, she was right. You know, I didn't come here because there was anything wrong with me. I came to fix my husband. That man needed my help. He didn't ask for it. But he really needed my help, you know. And I wanted to know what was going on. He had gone to AA, and I couldn't quite understand what was going on at those meetings because he went to a meeting that started at 8.30, and he didn't get home until after 12. And we were young, and he was handsome. And I wanted to know which of those AA women were after my husband. I, didn't know whether I wanted him or not, but nevertheless, I didn't want anybody to take him from me. So I decided that what I needed to do was start an Al-Anon group. So I went out to the old Hannon Y 
in Detroit, Michigan, and I went for about three or four meetings, then I understood the whole program. And, and, and I came back and started my own meeting. Um, needless to say, I have one of the slowest recoveries you ever heard about. Uh, we didn't have the literature like we have today. We had this one little bull book, and we would read that over and over again, and, and I'd write all the places where Peter needed help. You know, I'd underline, then I'd read the big book, and I'd underline what he needed to do to be a better. I used to say, I'm trying to teach you to be a better husband. Uh, he, he wouldn't listen. He just wouldn't listen to me. Um, I was going to meetings for years. Well, I had this one woman who, she and I started the meeting together, and she said to me, Dawn, here's what we should do. I want you to ride with me in the car, and then when we get to the meeting, you sit in the back seat of your husband's car, put a blanket over you, and then you can find out whether he's fooling around with other women. And I said that was the most brilliant idea I had ever heard in my life, and I asked her to be my sponsor. <laughs> Needless to say, recovery was slow, you know, really slow. I was so filled with this self-centered fear, this inability to talk in meetings, this inability to share. But oh, when I got in that car alone with Peter, you know, I could tell him just what we needed to do. Now, but this time, we're having Al-Anon, and he's going to AA, and we're both crazy. You know, uh, I'm, he's working the first step and the 12th step. He said the other steps were for lesser people than he, because he was a mental giant. I didn't always know it, but he was a mental giant. And uh, so I'm being miswonderful at home. My children said we were fig trees. You know, you see a fig tree in the Bible that talks about this fig tree that looks like it has... Uh, figs on it, and, and the master goes over and tries to pick it, and there's nothing there. Well, that's the way we look. People would call our house, and, and we'd be in the midst of a terrible argument. The kids would be hiding in the closet, and, and I'd pick up the phone and say, Hello, is there anything I can do to help you? You know, And I would help people work the fourth step. I hadn't looked at the fourth step. You know, I'm helping them get their lives together, and my life and my marriage was crumbling just crumbling. Peter and I were so angry at one another. And then we had this younger kid, and, and I took him to a psychiatrist. Um, I don't know why he was having problems. You know, he was living with Peter. If anybody thinks that the kids that grew up in their house don't have problems, you need to think again. Anybody who grows up in an alcoholic house with a pre-Alanon mother or with an Alanon mother who's not working a program, those kids are really mixed up. But anyway, I took David to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said to him, uh, she wanted to know what kind of parenting Peter had received. And Peter said he received a zero or one. And she asked me what kind I received, and I said I received an eight or a nine. And she said, you're the problem. She said, no one who received eight or nine would ever marry someone who received a zero or a one. That just blew my whole thing, because I thought I came from this wonderful family, and Peter came from this troubled home where he had an alcoholic father who used to beat him, and he just, his mother and father divorced. It was just a terrible home. And I said, but I come from a great house, you know. My mother, there's no alcohol in my house, not a bit, you know. Of course, we ate food like other people drink. I mean, we were total compulsive eaters. We were just a mess. But nevertheless, and nobody ever argued. I was listening to Stephanie last night, and I saw my parents argue one time. After that, it just, they just seemed to get along about everything, and I thought that was the way a marriage could be, and surely that wasn't the way my marriage was. My sponsor said to me, you know, after listening to that, she said, Dawn, when are you going to 
when are you going to work the steps in your life and begin the process of change? You know, and I said, well, I work them every day. I work them for Peter. You know, I'm trying to change him. And she said, no, no, no. When are you going to do it for yourself? And I began to look at where I came from. You know, I was born in a parsonage. Uh, and if there are any P kid, PK kids in here, you know, if you're ever born in a parsonage, you know, there's, there's certain rules in a parsonage. What happens in this house stays in this house, you know. There's, there's, there's a kind of piety that goes along with being in a parsonage. And yet everybody in that parsonage was kind of off. You know, not my mom and dad. I really think my mother and dad were really nice people. The problem was my mother didn't like children. You know, and she said she didn't like children. It wasn't her fault she had eight babies. The reason she had eight babies was if you're Methodist and you can't play cards and you can't dance, you have to have some outlet. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so mom and daddy had eight babies. Um, I was the last of the eight. Every time my dad would build a church, my mother would have a baby. My dad would build a church. My mother would have a baby. The last time dad said he would buy a church and it was over. So I was the last, and I had these brothers and sisters who I admired greatly. My oldest sister, who was gorgeous, I mean, she was gorgeous and she was brilliant. And uh, she, the only thing she had as a gift was she was thin. So I thought that made you well. I thought thin was well. Isn't that interesting? I didn't know that uh, you could be sick and still look good. Um, excuse me, I just... I didn't know that. One of the ideas that had to be erased from my head, you know. Uh, and also, my sister was schizophrenic. Now, I wanted to be just like her, and it's kind of hard for a kid to pattern themselves after a schizophrenic. Um, but I did the best I could. You know, I did the best I could. I remember, I remember she was engaged, and she took all the luggage and threw it down on her husband-to-be's head, and I thought that was the most romantic thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I said, when, when I grow up and I get married, I'm going to throw the luggage on my husband's head. It's going to really be love, you know. Uh, then I had this other sister who did nothing. She just rocked in a rocking chair and she watched the rest of us and she was totally resentful. And then I had these two brothers um, who both were gifted people. Everybody was gifted. I'm the only average one in my family. And, you know, there's some joy in being average. Um, I didn't know that then, but there's some joy in that, you know. Uh, they didn't have really any expectations of me um, because they were so tired by the time they got through dealing with these other brothers and sisters that, you know, I was just was there. You know, I was like the bump on the log watching all these crazy people. My brother who wanted to be uh, an actor couldn't be an actor if you're born in the parsonage. And so he did the next best thing. He went into the ministry. Then I had this other <laughs> this other brother who wanted to be a jazz musician, but you couldn't do that if he's in the born in the parsonage, so he would play these great hymns and we would sing together. Everybody could sing and we sound like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And then Daddy would leave and we'd all go into Bessie Smith and jazz singers and stuff. And then Daddy would come back and we'd go back and play all these hymns again. And Daddy would say, they're such devout children, look at them, you know. And people at the church, my father started, this church had 300 members. And by the time I was about four or five, my father had 6,000 members. It was the largest black church in the country. My father, who was an eloquent preacher, I would listen to my father. Every, every sermon he preached, I knew it was for me. And I was always repenting, you know. Uh, <laughs> now, the truth of the matter is my mother and father turned my care over to my grandfather because they were tired. And my grandfather, who was an ex-slave and who had been brutalized most of his life, sexually abused me. And so I grew up with this feeling of being different and dirty. And every Sunday I came down that aisle and got on my knees. Little children aren't dirty. You know, and I'd ask God to clean me up and to change me and to make me whole again. 
And every Sunday, first Sunday in Methodist, we have communion, and I just knew the communion would do it, but I'd leave there and I'd feel the same way. And so what I learned to do was to stuff myself. If I ate enough and I got fat enough, nobody could come close enough to hurt me. And so I grew up with this feeling of being different and keep away from me. Keep away from me because you're going to hurt me. And my brothers and sisters all went off to college, and I was left at home with my parents. By this time, my dad had become a bishop in the church. And we moved to this Episcopal residence, and our life had changed completely. I liked being the pastor's daughter. I liked being the youngest one because I knew how to milk the congregation. You know, every Sunday I'd bring a purse, and they'd put coins in it. And this is just after the Depression. I mean, and I had money. You know, these people would pay me to be nice. And they used to say to my mother, you have the worst children in the world. My mother said they're just mischievous. They're not bad children. And we'd have the janitor of the church locked in the basement. You know what I mean? We, we just did, we'd boil, we'd cook eggs, rather. We'd decorate eggs. We never cooked them. And we'd bring them to church on Sunday. And anybody who had gotten after us, we'd give them an egg. And they'd have this egg stuff running down the front of their stuff. You know, and we just thought that was so funny, you know. And Mama didn't seem to think it was as funny, you know, as we did. But uh, And the members didn't seem to think it was as funny, you know. But we had to do something to amuse ourselves. Uh, being in the Parsonage, once again, life was different, you know. And then when he we went into the Episcopal residence, life was really different. I really felt this first sense of real jealousy because we got a new pastor. And she had a little girl, and people started treating her nice. And I was so resentful. You know, I have suffered from the character defects long before I met my husband. I have been filled with self-pity and anger and resentment and fear, and all those things were part of who I was. I thought they were caused by being living with an alcoholic. I didn't know I brought that to the relationship. You know, when I was about 17 or 18, I discovered I could really sing. I was really good. You can't tell that now. I've had surgery on my vocal cords, and it's very hard for me to talk, but I never stopped. And this choir director at the church, he told me how good I was. And I got all the solos at the church, and I was singing my heart out, you know. And it was the first time anybody ever paid any attention to me. And I got in the car coming home one night, and this man took advantage of me. And I remember going in the house, and I showered, and my mother kept saying, that dawn, you're going to wash the, just going to wash your skin off. And I knew that something was wrong, because that next month, we went to Europe that summer. And I was sick on the boat the whole way over. And uh, I came home and I realized that um, I was pregnant and there was nobody to go to. And so I just kept getting bigger and bigger. But I was so fat, Mama didn't pay any attention to it. She would say every once in a while, when are you going to lose that weight? And I'd say, one day I'm going to lose that weight, you know. And uh, one day I went to Women's Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, I gave birth to a 10-pound, 4-ounce baby boy, and my mother and father were in total shock. They called my parents from the hospital, and my dad came to the hospital, and he said, it's going to be all right, and I had this sense of well-being. I've always loved babies. Even when my dad pastored that church, every Sunday I'd go up and look and see if I could find somebody's baby, and I'd bring the baby down. The mother could sit in church nicely because I was going to take care of the baby. And I used to go downstairs after we'd have a tea at the house or something and hope somebody had left a child at our house because I just loved little babies, you know. And so I had this baby in my arms, and we're coming home from the hospital, and we got to the stoplight, and this woman opened the door of the car, snatched the baby out of my arms, and closed the door of the car. And I remember screaming. I remember crying and saying, where is my child? And my dad would say, 
I am a bishop of the church. I have lived an exemplary life before you. You go back to school and you make something of yourself. You put this behind you. And I was crazy. I go from church to church looking for this little girl, looking for this little baby, this little boy. And uh, one day I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, the only thing that's really wrong with you is your fat. Nothing else, you know. I was always trying to fix the outside of me. If I could fix the outside of me, then everything would be okay. Forget about any turmoil going on inside. So I found a diet doctor in Detroit. This diet doctor had his office kind of like over a junk shop. And I remember I took a cab over there, and I said to the cab driver, um, uh, I want to go to Dr. Weinstein. And he said, I wouldn't take my dog to Dr. Weinstein. And I said, neither would I. I'm going. So I got to Dr. Weinstein, and he gave me a shot, and then he gave me those little pills, you know. And I took those little pills, and I was the laziest child my mother had. I never cleaned anything. I was the last child. By the time I came along, Mom and Daddy could have help. I remember one time they paid me to dust, and Daddy paid me twice as much not to dust because I did such a poor job. You know, I mean, I was just lazy. I got home with those pills. I cleaned the house. I cleaned the bedrooms. I cleaned downstairs. I had the maid sit down. You know, I mean, I was working, you know. And about 10 months later, this grossly obese child had lost weight. And I stood in front of the mirror. And I had to tell you this, I was a stone fox. You know, I mean, I looked so good. I looked so good that summer. My brother said I could ride in the front seat with him. You know what I'm saying? Now, he had never let me do that before. I was looking good. And I knew it wasn't going to last long. Because food was looming over here saying, Dawn, I want you back, you know. And I'm saying, not yet. You know, I'm going to find a husband. When I find a husband, everything's going to be all right. So the first guy that came along was this young pastor of a church out in Pontiac. And he fell in love with the outside of me. You know, he thought I looked good. And I babbled. I didn't say anything. But you know how those pills can make you talk? So I always sounded like I was saying something. I didn't know what I was talking about, you know. And I... He said, will you marry me? And I said, yes. Well, this other young guy who worked for the government, he was doing well. And he said to me, Dawn, he said, I've fallen in love with you. He said, will you marry me? And I said, yes. (laughs) I I was changing engagement rings on a nightly basis. You know what I mean? (laughs) Then there was this guy who just come home from the service. Now, he didn't have a job. Uh, he didn't have a car. He had his mustering out page. They'd pay from the army. They had said to him that his drinking was interfering with his military service, and they gave him the option of getting out. And so he got out, and he was so exciting. With him, I went to a nightclub. I'd never been to a nightclub in my life. And when we went into the nightclub, they would say things like, well, here comes Dr. Crawford. And I said, wow, I didn't know he had a doctorate, you know. Then I went up to another one. They said, here comes Attorney Crawford. I said, wow, this man is really brilliant, you know. Then we were standing at the bus stop. Once again, no car. And uh, he said, Dawn, he said, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I said, that is so romantic. <laughs> Your great thinkers are alcoholics. This is really something, you know. Then he said to me, this is what it got. He said, I need you. Oh, my God. It was like lights went on. You know, the reverberation of, I need you, I need you, I need you. I said, this is it. 
I had a mission. I was going to fix him. You know, I was going to really straighten up this man's life. Now, the other thing I liked about Peter, uh, he was nuttier than I was. And I wasn't too aware that I was nutty, but I knew that this man was, he spoke Martian. You know what I mean? I never knew what he was talking about. He finally got a job. He told me this job was um, management training. And I found out he was a janitor. But it was a job. Okay. Then he went to ask my dad for my hand. And, you know, I think my dad was so happy to get rid of me. Dad said, yeah. You know, yes. Well, the thing was, Mama had died, uh, oh, I guess about a year before. And my dad, uh, who said, I have loved your mother with all my heart and I will never marry again. He said, it will be just like my grandfather. I'll say, they'll say, how are you doing without Alma? And he'd say, I'm all right. I have loved Alma. It's enough. Well, two months later when he brought his bride home, <laughs> I was a little bit confused, you know. And so uh, I, I didn't know just what to do. I remember telling this woman, I know you're marrying my daddy for his money, and I just went off, you know. And my father said to me, he said, you are the only one who disappointed your mother. And I had to be quiet at that point. And believe it or not, that stepmother and I became very good friends, and we were really close through the years. But it was a difficult time for me, so I decided we would elope. Now, poor Peter, he didn't know what was going on. You know, I don't think he was sober enough to know we were going to elope, you know. And I said, we're going to elope. And Peter said, this is really exciting, you know. And he and I eloped. Just interesting, last two weeks ago I spoke in little outside of Toledo. And it, it was the same place where Peter and I had gone to elope. I was surprised that the city was still standing. Uh, the, the other thing was I looked to see if Justice Bud was still living because that was the one who had married us. And uh, I remember we eloped and we went to, came back to Detroit and we went to the old Barlam Hotel. And I got a bag of pastrami sandwiches. I was so hungry. And Peter got a bag of German beer and he drank beer all night. And I ate all night. It's a wonder we ever had children. I was so happy. I didn't have to diet anymore because I had him. You know, and he didn't have to stay sober anymore because he had me. And so here we are, these two crazy people together, and we're going to form a family. And the bets were out in the family that it would not last over six months. But we fixed them. <laughs> we stayed together. We fixed them. You know, and I remember... Um, the despair in my home when I realized what alcoholism was. I thought it was kind of romantic. I didn't know it had to do with not bringing the check home. I didn't know that you would leave on the weekend to get a loaf of bread and not show up until Monday morning. I didn't know any of those things. I didn't know. Peter would tell me things like we would, he said, you know, the reason I'm late is my friend died. And I called everybody because his friend died and they sent flowers and everything. Well, he then a blackout. The guy's mother got all these flowers, you know, and she was saying, how dare you, you know. And I said, I only repeated what my husband said to me, you know. Peter had this other little habit, like he'd come home from one of those drunks and his pants would be wet. They used to call him Pissy Pete. And, and, and he was such a dignified looking man, you know, this is, but this is who he was, you know. I mean, he would get drunk and he couldn't control himself. 
And I used to feel this great. He would come in and I'd say, Peter, let's get on our knees and pray. And we'd pray and pray. And Peter would be snoring and I'm still praying. I'd say, come on, Peter. We need God to touch you. And Peter would say, Don, I'm so tired. And I'd say, whatever. But anyway, it was just, it was a battle. And then at home we brought three children. You know, we brought, when the first child was born, Peter took me to the hospital and forgot about me. And I remember, this is another thing that tells you who I was. He forgot about me and I was in that hospital. And uh, I called home to see where he was because he was just going to go out and call the relatives. And another woman answered the phone. And this sense of low self-esteem hit me. How dare he have somebody else in my house, in my bed, and I'm in the hospital delivering his child. And I said, any decent woman would say, get out of here, go on your way. And I said, oh, well, I didn't deserve much more than this. And so I called my dad, and my dad sent me money so that I could get out of the hospital. And Peter remembered us, and he came and got us. And uh, he then remembered that sometime in the early 50s, he had been in Georgia, and he had been sentenced to AA. But he didn't like AA because when they sentenced him, they wouldn't let him in the room. They made him sit in the doorway. And they said that in the state of Georgia, you couldn't come in because you were black, but they couldn't put you out either because the traditions had just passed. And so Peter would sit in that door, and he would be so filled with resentment and anger. But that night when he came home and he was so upset because this, with himself because he couldn't stop drinking, he remembered he hit his hand against the wall, and he said, um, I'm going to call AA. And I remembered I'd called my preacher to tell him about, I wanted to tell my sad story about how I'd been left and there was no food in the house and all that. And I had a preacher never call me back. But here came this man from, man came from AA, two guys. And with Peter's rage because of what happened in Georgia, God has such a great sense of humor. Don't you know he sent two white guys through the door? <laughs> you know? And they said to Peter, if you want to be sober more than you want to be drunk, you would climb in those pants and go with us to an AA meeting. And I remember sitting in that house crying, saying, but who's going to come and get me? I've been alone all this time with this baby. I was such a good drama queen. You know, I could really work you up into something. You know, I've been alone with these babies. And who's going to come and take care of me? Who's going to buy food for me? You know, I, the whole story. And Peter would go to a meeting. He went to a meeting every night. I could what is he going every night for? I knew they were going to take him one night, but not every night. These guys would show up at my door every night. And I was so angry. I mean, I thought because he got sober, we were going to be this nice little couple. Then he was out carrying the message. How could he carry the message? He didn't have anything to carry. You know what I mean? He, he was working the first step and the twelfth step, and he was trying to help people. And our rent was due, and they were getting ready to kick us out of the apartment, but they couldn't do it because my dad owned the apartment. Other than that, we'd have been out on the street, you know. And Peter was doing his best, but he was nutty as a fruitcake. Now listen who's telling you that, and think about it again, you know. I remember the kids grew up and they started getting bigger. I'm dragging these kids to Al-Anon meetings. And I remember poor little Lisa, you'd stand on the porch sometimes, and the little kids would say, what do you want to play? And Lisa said, I want to play Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> but that's all they knew. You know, that's all they knew. And they liked to get the cake, too. You know, and I, I, I like to get the cake, too. Now, I'm grown up, too. Peter left when I was this thin woman when I married him. 
He came home one day and he said, who is this grossly obese woman standing at the door? Something had changed. I'd gone back to my drug of choice, which was obsessing over him and eating. That was my drug of choice. And poor Peter didn't know what to do. He said he never really liked me fat, you know, but that wasn't the problem. He was supposed to love me fat because when you don't love yourself, you have to depend on somebody else to love you. You know, so he had to hop through all these hoops just to make me feel good about myself. What an awful burden to put on another human being, you know. When you don't feel good about yourself, how are you going to make somebody else make you feel good? But that was his job. And I'd say things to him. I'd put on a dress or something and I'd say, do I look fat in this? Well, he'd say, well, I, I, I said, well, do I look fat in it? Peter said, I don't know what to say if I say yes. You're going to be angry if I say no. You're going to say you're lying. What do I say? I say, oh, well, never mind. You know, I looked at two dresses, the green dress and the brown dress, because they were stretch knits I got from Spiegel. They were the only ones that fit. Little kids look really nice. I don't have everybody look nice. Peter looked nice. And I was in the brown dress and the green dress. That's all I had. That's all I cared about myself. That was it, you know. And the kids were growing up, and they wouldn't be cute anymore. I had one who would sing, and this one would recite poetry, and this one would do something else. And they wouldn't be cute anymore. They kept not listening to me anymore. And I said, what's wrong with these people? I'm dragging them to meetings, and they're not listening? What's going on here? And my sponsor said to me, Don, when are you going to change? Well, Alma took me to this church one Sunday. My kids have been Methodists, they've been Baptists, they've been Episcopalian, they've been Lutheran, they've been Missouri Synod Lutheran, they've been Episcopalian, they've been Catholic. Every once in a while we were trying to find some place that would fill the hole in us and we dragged these kids. See, we didn't know we were right in the midst of where the hole could be filled with those steps. I didn't know that. I was so busy trying to have this big spiritual experience. One of my prayers was, God, if you'll strike me thin, I'm laying on the sofa eating potato chips, you know, <laughs> I will serve you for the rest of my life, you know, always looking for the easier, shorter way. That's what I wanted, you know. I didn't want to do any work, you know. I just wanted some instant magic, you know. Be all right if you change my name. That was an old spiritual they used to sing when Saul's name was changed to Paul, you know. I want to change my name, you know, that's all I want. I will be your servant. God said, you got to work for it. you got to do something. You have to work these steps, not play them, you know. And we went to this church one Sunday, and this woman got up and talked about her eating addiction. And she talked about giving up sugar and white flour. And I said, what? And I remember going over to her. I was weighing about 100, about 110 pounds more than I weighed today. And I kind of walked over to her, and I said, I have a friend who desperately needs some inside help, you know. And uh, my life began to change. I remember realizing that, um, that maybe God didn't plan for me to feel this bad about myself, that uh, maybe if I worked these steps and looked at me carefully and saw that uh, people I sponsored were getting well, and they dropped me like a, you know, they say, she's still crazy. But I was doing the best I could, you know. I was so drunk on food, I didn't know what I was saying. I was really trying. And, uh, I mean, I had prayed with people till they get sick of hearing me pray, you know. But I wasn't doing anything. And then I realized, you know, that if they could get well, there was hope that I could be restored to sanity. There could be some change in me. I didn't have to live the rest of my life like this. I could be transformed and changed, and I could become a loving human being. I used to say to Peter, I just want to be nice. Peter said, is that all? 
And I said, you should be happy. That's my wish because you have to live with me. We had this little, um, when David, oh, I guess David, when David was born, uh, Peter decided, oh, he was so angry that night. I, we brought David home. And um, at this time, I'm always helping somebody. I had a foster child. I'd been taking care of my schizophrenic sister. My husband was nutty as a fruitcake. He had lost a job, and we were back doing, I don't know what we were doing at this point. He had the other three kids who were totally out of, but anyway, I'm going to help the world. And um, hmm. when David, he said, uh, he made a decision that when David was 18, he was going to get out of there. And I had gotten on my knees holding that baby in front of me, and I said, when you grow up, sweetheart, I will be out of this relationship and I'm going to take care of both of you and take care of all of you. Well, see what I didn't know. This is what I didn't know God's plan. God's plan was that I began to work the steps, you know. And I remember um, I began to change. And I hadn't expected that. Well, what happened was Peter looked over at me, left me alone, and he began to change. He started working the steps for himself. And uh, instead of pointing a finger at me, he was pointing fingers at himself and seeing his sponsor was working with him on a daily basis. And my sponsor was loving me and working with me on a daily basis. And I remember doing a four-step thinking, my God, she's going to get up and run out of this room. When she hears my inner thoughts, not my outer thoughts, because I could fake it on the outside, but she could hear this pain in me and my resentments and the little tricks I played on Peter, you know. And even though I, my glory, my thing, to, my fame was I was a faithful wife. Well, the only reason I was faithful was because I was so big nobody wanted me, you know what I'm saying? But I looked like I was being, you know, I would tell Peter, at least I'm faithful, you know. And he said, yeah, right. Sometimes he wished I hadn't been faithful, you know. <laughs> if I could just done something else instead of leave him alone. But all at once, all at once, I began to work these steps. And I realized doing that fourth step that I wasn't really that good at being bad. Now, it wasn't that I was perfect or nice or all those things, but I wasn't really that good at being bad. But my disposition was terrible. And that was something that if I worked the rest of the steps, God would clear up and make me better. I remember I'd gotten to the sixth step, and uh, I was feeling, you know, I'd written down all these things that I wanted God to do something about. I always want, you know, I'm telling him, not, not, not asking him in his order, not saying, will you do, but I'm t this is what I need changed. And, you know, so Peter, by this time, believe it or not, was um, directing one of the first HMOs in the country. Hadn't graduated from college yet. He was really interesting. He was a success. He went from one big job to another big job. Next thing I knew, he was directing one of the first HMOs in this country. That was before they got bad. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so he told me, he said, you know, I've hired a new secretary, and we're, I'm working these steps. And I said, oh, this is great, you know. I said, oh, she's an older woman. And he said, well... She is. She's older and uh, she's very responsible. And so I was there entertaining his staff and I'm holding out my hand being really gracious, you know. And this young woman in a mini skirt came down, you know, and came up to me and said, Mrs. Crawford, 
I'm your husband's new secretary. I said, no, you're not. (laughs) And Peter was over there in the corner, and he raced over like he's coming up to get me, you know, and I'm blowing up bigger than a balloon. And he said, uh, said, she's dragging me out of that meeting. And he said, she didn't look like that when I hired her. (laughs) And I got in the car, and I'm ranting and raving, and Peter said, Don, Don, does this have anything to do with your self-esteem? And I said, what? I got home and I called my sponsor up. I said, let me tell you what he said. He said, does this have anything to do with your self-esteem? And I, she said, does it? And I hung up on her. <laughs> and I got on my knees and I said, God, I can't do anything about this. You know, I would, self-esteem would be way down here. Then I'd think I was better. Then I'd think I was less. It just was just no medium ground, just less than this. And I always judging from the outside, not from the inside. And I remember praying, God, I don't know what to do with this, but deliver me from the bondage of self. Help me, Lord, so the victory over this will show glory to who you are. You know, I can't live like this anymore. And here I'm standing at the corner over here at a retreat, and Peter's over there talking to young, attractive women, and the thought hit me. I don't feel anything. I just love Peter. I didn't know I was going to fall in love with my husband again. That wasn't the plan, you know. The plan was to get out of there, you know. And he was talking to somebody, and I just knew that I loved that man. If God could stop me from that jealousy, if he could, you know, would hit my feet and rise up. I know none of you have ever had jealousy, so it's not. It would hit my feet and just rise up, you know, and I would just be out of control. If God could lift that, he could stop me from eating compulsively. He could lift some of that anger and that resentment. He could help me feel good about myself. And I remember looking at Peter one day and realizing that man is fortunate to have me in his life. I'm an asset to him. Where did that come from? That didn't come from me. That came from this inner power that was working through me, that was making me realize that I was a child of God and that I was worth saving. You know, that's the good news that we get in these rooms, that God brings us in here broken and hurting, and he transforms us in the beginning. We begin to change. We begin to become all God wants us to be, slowly, little by little, never reach perfection. You know, my sponsors, my, 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 my sponsors were saying the other day, you know, how sick I must be that I'm still going to meetings. You know, and I said, you're right. I will never graduate from here. You know, every day brings a new situation. Every day brings a new problem. Every day life unfolds something different. And I have to have these steps. I hang it up aside of the serenity prayer and I say, mm, can I do anything about that? Well, no, I can't, you know. Can I change this? No. But I have on the mirror at my house, you're looking at the problem. I can be changed. If I can be changed, anything can be changed. You know, world will change. Life will change. The kids will change. When the kids come to me with the problem, I say, they say this big thing is going on. And I say, hmm, that's very interesting. Tell me how you solve that. And then they have the joy of working through their own problems. Well, then before all this wonderful change happened, my children came to me, my eldest child, and she wanted, she wanted to counsel with me. And I said, this is it. See, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm going to be better than my parents were. You know, I'm going to really be here for my daughter. And so she said, I need to talk to you and Daddy. And I said, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready, you know. So I'm sitting there, and she says, Mama, there's something you ought to know about me. 
And I said, she's going to tell me. You know how we always know in our head what somebody's going to say. And I had it ready because I had the answer. See, And she said, I'm gay. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> not in my house, you're not gay. You know. <laughs> and we lost Lisa for a while. And my sponsor said, you get the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and every day you read page 459, you read it until you hear it. You read it until you become a part of who you are. You read it until God changes you. You read it. And there were times Lisa would call, and I didn't know where she was. I would cry, and she would cry. I didn't know where she was. And there would be a call from California. There'd be a call from Boise, Idaho. She'd be a call from some other place somewhere out of New York. And one day she called, and she was living in Boise then, and she said, Mom, I need to come home. I'm suffering from the disease of alcoholism, and I need to bring my friend. And I called my sponsor. And my sponsor said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to say, Lisa, come home. Come on home, you know. And I watched my daughter come home, you know. And my daughter didn't change. I changed. Peter changed. We had open arms. She got off that plane and she looked like somebody had dressed her out of a missionary barrel. She looked so pathetic and her friend was trying to look nice and a little short Italian girl. Looked just like, what's that guy's name? Arnold Stang. You don't remember him. I'm so old you remember that movie. But, I, <laughs> but she was all dressed up and just like a little penguin coming up to me, you know. And Peter and I just put out our arms and they came and you know what those kids did? They got sober living in my house. Got sober. And they both have celebrated 27 years of sobriety. <laughs> Lisa called me about five years ago, and uh, six years ago, and she said, Mom, I want you to come come home. I, I um, got something to tell you. And so I said, I'm always here, and what have they got to tell me this time? So I came in, and I got off the plane, and she said, Mom, I got good news for you. And I said, what is it, honey? She said, I'm getting married. I said, what? You and Nancy have been together for over 20 years now. What a blessing. She said, no, I'm marrying a man. I said, what? <laughs> now, I've become the gay mother of the year. Okay? I'm out here marching, carrying banners, you know. You know? I'm sitting at the seat and at the side of young people who are dying with AIDS. You know, I'm Miss Wonderful in the program and in and. In the, in the gay world, you know. I'm out speaking at gay rallies. I'm doing all this stuff. She's going to marry a man. <laughs> I called my sponsor and she said, page 449. <laughs> you know, and old Lisa married a man and it was a blessing. She loved him and he loved her. And six months later, he died, you know. But they had that moment. What if I had not been working my program and had gotten in the way of their blessing? You know, isn't God good? I want to thank you for that. You know, you gave me the tools to deal with that on a daily basis, you know. Then God gave me this child. Oh, my God, he gave me this child. My mother used to say, I hope you have a child just like you. And I got Alma. And Alma, I remember I would spank Alma like this, and Alma would say, a big lady like you hitting a little girl like me, you know, and I don't know, I, I was always baffled by her, you know, she always had an answer for everything, she just wore me out, I want this house run like a democracy, I don't want it run with a mother and father, I want a position in this house, so Lisa, you I mean, you're only six, you know, I'm sorry, you're going to have to be the child until you bring home some money in this house, you know, 
whatever. You know, I remember saying, I'm going to throw you out that window. I didn't want anybody to hear me. I'm going to throw you out that window. Right over there, if you open your mouth. What, what window are you going to throw me out? I said, we were at a meeting. I didn't want the people at a meeting to know I was ready to throw this child. Then one day we were at church, and her sister, her sister had said she sang or something, and it was just beautiful. And Alma got so mad, she got up from the back seat of the church, ran to the front, and mooned the congregation. <laughs> you know, I just, I just love that child. She was just, she was so interesting. I used to do a four-step. I would tell my, I, I'm doing another four-step on Alma. You know, I, I have to, because if I don't do a four-step on her, I might kill her. And so I have to do this, I do this four-step on her. And you know what I would see? She was so much like me. She had so many of my character defects. She had assets, too. But she was so much, she would stand toe-to-toe. You know that kind of kid who has an answer for everything? And then she grew up. And we were sending her away to college. And uh, she went away to college, and she came home and said, um, she said, I've decided that uh, I don't need college. She said, I've heard my calling. She said, I'm going to be a waitress. Now, this is a child... <laughs> who never picked up anything at the house. She had an IQ out of the wall. She was just brilliant, you know. And, and, and I remember Peter and I said, we're going to do the best we can. Peter's sponsor said, we must support her. And my sponsor said, you go to that restaurant where she's waiting tables and just be there for her. And we went there, and I've never seen a waitress like that. She brought us the wrong food. And, and, and she said to the man who was sitting at the table next to us, he said, have you ever seen a waitress this bad? And we didn't say it was our daughter. We just said, no, she is interesting. We got up and left, and we didn't leave a tip. We just left. And and that was Alma's waiting career. And before she could get herself together, she was standing at the bus stop coming home, and a man put a knife in Alma's neck and dragged her off into an alley and raped my baby, you know. Here was the good news. I had worked through all my stuff in these rooms with you all. I had talked about sexual abuse. I had talked about all the things that my grandfather had done. I had talked about these things. So I could go to Alma and just put my arms around her and say it's going to be all right and allow her to realize she had been a victim, but she was going to be all right. She wasn't going to remain a victim. And let her feel whatever she needed to feel and talk about whatever she needed to talk about. And about a year later, Alma went away to Boston to study to become a minister, and she she uh, finished up her undergraduate degree in uh, Washington and then got her master's in divinity. And I watched her being ordained in the United Church of Christ. And I would sit at her feet to listen to her preach because she's eloquent. And I was sitting with her one day and she said, Mama, you know what? There's something you ought to know. And I said, what is it, sweetheart? She said, I'm gay. And I said, I'm happy too. <laughs> you know, the other thing... <laughs> The other thing that has been very interesting in my life, that grandfather who sexually abused me, I had this rage and anger about him. And my sponsor and I sat down one day, and I had written about him. And she said, Don, let's look at him. She said, how old was he? And I said, he was in his 90s. She said, tell me a little about his background. And she, I said, he was a slave. He had been abused over and over again. He had stripes on his back where he had been whipped as a young man, you know. And uh, she said, 
do you think maybe some senility had set into him? I said, I don't know. And she said, well, what is the rage? What good is it doing you? What are you getting out of it? And I said, nothing but pain. And she said, do you think maybe you could let him off the hook? And you know what? Here's the thing about the program I don't understand. I have grown to the point now where I love my grandfather. I hate the sin, but I love my grandfather. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? You know? And the man who fathered my child, you know, I look at him and he was a troubled man. You know, he was a troubled man. And how much of my life have I given power to him rather than power to God? And I had to work. That's what the steps have been so valuable for me. I remember going to a counselor and working that through again and again and again until finally I could say, God bless him and let me release him. He's in your hands. And when that happened, my sister called me and she said, Dawn, there's something you ought to know. And I said, what is it, honey? And she said, I want you to come to Detroit. That's where they were pastoring then. And I sat around the table with my sister and my other children. And she said, this boy I adopted when he was a baby, this is your son. And I was reunited with my son again. The hole was filled. God had filled the hole in these rooms. I didn't need him anymore, but I could love him unconditionally. That's what you taught me how to do. And he's very much a part of my life. And I have two beautiful grandchildren by him. One who's graduating from some music school in Seattle. The symphony has played her music that she has written. She writes sacred music. You know, God has restored unto me the years which the locusts have eaten. Isn't that a wonderful promise we have in these rooms? We come here and we have all these scars on us. But if we keep doing the right thing, working this program, doesn't mean we're not going to have trouble. About ten years ago, maybe it was... Oh, I guess it was longer than that. David and I sat on the sofa and he said, Mama, David was my joy. David was a child who, he was born in 1965. And uh, I thought I was old. I was 31 when he was born. I thought 31 was old when you had children, you know. I had said to somebody not long ago, long before that, I said, anybody over 30 who has children, they ought to give it up. Don't you know I was pregnant the next month? <laughs> God does have a sense of humor, you know what I'm saying? And old David, David was a joy. He was such a sweet little boy and he could sing and he was just gifted, you know. And he would sing and people would come up to me and say, is he the one, you know, because he had this little angelic face. Then he'd come home and after singing these great hymns and he'd play Bessie Smith and all his different jazz stuff, you know. And then he'd sing jazz. I'd take him, we'd take him to uh, music bars, you know, and they'd let him sing. He'd sing with Ella Fitzgerald, let him sing, you know, I mean, little things. But he was just a little kid because he was so cute. Anyway, he came, and um, I remember when he was about 16, he, um, he uh, tried to kill himself. And we had to take him to hospital. And uh, I remember Peter and I um, sitting with him and, and weeping because we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And I remember after he got out of that hospital, he sat down with me one day and he said, Mama, I'm not going to ever do that again. I'm going to see what the end will be. And shortly after that, he found out he was HIV positive. And we walked with David. David was in a bar one night. This is why I love God. David was in a bar one night. And I had told David he couldn't live with us if his behavior didn't change. And so he had moved out. 
And he called me from the bar and he said, Mama, there's something, um, I think a miracle just happened. And I said, what is it, son? He said, I came out of the stall and I said out loud, he said, I don't know what my name is, I'm so drunk. And this man came up to me and the man said, you don't have to live like that. I'll take you to a meeting. I forgot to tell you, David told me he was gay. Okay. <laughs> so this was in a gay bar. Now, I would not have prayed for God to meet my son in a gay bar, would you? You know, but I had taken my hand off him and said, God, you do with him what you will. Just let me give him unconditional love. And old David, good gracious, David found recovery in a gay bar. You know, I'm just amazed, you know. And he went to two internationals with us. We had a great time with David while he was going through the process of his illness increasing, you know. And I was visiting Alma in in Chicago, and Peter called and said, you need to come home. So I came home, and David was in the hospital, and uh, I remember Teresa coming to see him. And he kicked Teresa and I out of the room because Teresa was so noisy, not me. We were just laughing and talking. David said, I am sick in here, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we would ha- just love David. And he said to me when he got when I got there, he said, Mama, is this it? And I said, son, I don't know. And I went to talk to the doctors. And the doctor said, I think he's going to make it for about three or four days. But he's in so much pain. She said, if we increase the morphine, David will go tonight. And I went in and talked to David. And um, David said, if God loves me, he's not going to leave me in this pain. And he said to me, Mama, you have loved me more than enough. If I could have loved anybody as much as you've loved me, it would be more than enough. And he said to his dad, I'm so glad we worked things out. Because he and Peter would go out every Wednesday just to be together and talk with me out of the way. You know what I'm saying? So they could work out whatever it was that came between them. And we all sat there and he asked Lisa, will you sing? There is a bomb in Gilead that heals the wounded soul. And I held his hand, you know. And I said, it's okay to go, David. And my son left us, you know. I will miss David every day of my life. But I will see him again. See, that's the good news. And I had the privilege of loving him. I loved David for 33 years. You know, what a gift that was. Because I didn't even think I was going to have another. You know, David was really a gift. He was really a surprise to Peter and I. What a blessing he was. And he knew how to make me laugh. Peter said to him one day, I know it's hard for young men to live up to fathers who have accomplished a lot. He said, yeah, Dad, but I won't have that problem because I can't see too much what you've done here. <laughs> Peter said, I wouldn't slam a door this hard, David. You know, But he just had a great way with words and with people, you know. I just love that boy with all my heart, you know. And then some... Eight years ago, um, Peter got sick, you know. And and the good news was, you know, I had expectations of Peter. You know, when I was hearing you talk this morning, I realized my husband was in World War II. He had been shot off of a, a, a submarine. He had floated out in the ocean. He had been in the Korean War. He had experienced all kind of pain. He was really a very troubled man, and I expected him to come home and be a normal husband. You know, what was wrong with me? But we didn't understand the repercussions of that kind of pain in my day. You know, I just thought you'd just come home and you straighten up. You know, just get, you know, stop drinking and just straighten up. And I watched that man struggle through so many things. 
I remember one night he woke up with a nightmare because he thought he was in uh, one of those, I don't know what you build when you're in Korea down and he woke up and this Korean guy was standing there and he was standing there and whoever shot first was the one who was going to survive and he had to live with that the rest of his life, you know. And he would have those nightmares. Sometimes in the last days of his life, he would be fighting in the war. I had to move out of the bedroom because he was kicking and just fighting, you know. He was still in a foxhole somewhere. You know, God did a marvelous thing with that man. He took that broken man who couldn't care about any, as he, he, we said, he used to say, I'm not much but I'm all I think about. You know, he stopped saying that. You know, he used to also say, I'll die for you, just don't inconvenience me. Don't call me when I'm looking at football. You know, but he, he went out and carried message. He worked all those steps in his life. I love that man. He was just my partner and my best friend. You know, we sat around and talked about what I've been before, how crazy he was, how crazy I was. And we had the chance to build all those bridges. I stood like this now and he stood like this. We didn't have to worry about one falling if the other left, you know. I knew that I would be all right. I just didn't want him to go. You know what I'm saying? Forty-five years, it wasn't supposed to last six months. And it was beautiful. Well, at least the last 30 years were. The first, you know, I wouldn't count, you know. I don't talk too much about the first, you know. But God had the tempering to do for both of us. And by the time he finished what he was doing, we had a union, you know. Peter and David, I mean, Peter used to, David used to say, they really deserve one another. I don't know whether that was good or bad. But, you know, it was just beautiful to see. He could finish my sentences, and I could finish his, and sometimes I'd say, shut up and let me finish, you know, <laughs> because he knew where I was going with the thought, and I knew where he was going with the thought. And we just got to, the, just to hold his hand, you know, we were at church one Sunday, and it was one of those beautiful moments, you know, Peter always could make me laugh, but we were at church, and we were having the kiss of peace, and I always liked that moment, you know, and, and so... They turned, and I said to the person next to me, and may the peace of Christ be with you. And then Peter turned to me, and I, Peter said, patty cake, patty cake. <laughs> but he said it with such sincerity, you know. And, and I started laughing, and I couldn't stop laughing, you know. And so I put this up, and the lady said, your knife is so emotional, you know. I said, if you ever do that to me again, you know. It was a, he knew how to get me every time, you know. And we just laugh over some of the things he had done through the years that had cracked me up. Peter could, he'd tell his story, and I'd laugh like I'd never heard it before, you know. He was just such a wonderful guy. You know, not as a fruitcake always. You know, he was eccentric. That's what he was. The kids used to say, yes, Dad what time it is and he tells you how to make a clock you know <laughs> but he learned to listen I used to say honey don't fix me just let me tell you and he'd say oh I thought you wanted me to fix it for him you know I just want you to listen and he learned how to listen to me I know I probably bored him to death but he learned to listen because I listened to him too and then he'd say your eyes are glazing over but then <laughs> but I remember that night you know that uh, oh that was so cute the nurse said I, I had to take him to hospice because I'd been taking care of him at home and had hospice at home. And here's the miracle of God, too. This is, we got to the door. We got to the door of the hospice. And Peter said, stop. And we said, what is it, honey? And he said, Dawn, look over there in the corner. And I said, what is it, honey? He said, there's David. He's come to get me. Isn't God generous? Isn't God generous with his love? Here was David coming to get his daddy, and we would sit in the room, and Dave, Peter would talk to us, and then he'd look over and kind of wave his hand at David, you know. He was so grateful. They brought to him his 44th 
anniversary in the program and they had it there in the room with him. And then he had it taped so he could listen to people say how wonderful he was. He just loved that. You know? He just loved that. You know? I asked him one day, I said, Peter, why do you talk to women so much? And he said, because they make me feel really good. I said, oh, that's nice because, you know, you're not going to get that from me. He said, I know this. I know the truth, you know, but you know, what a joy. I just want to thank you all for giving me the privilege of marrying an alcoholic, you know. I am so grateful for this program. I don't think my life, I don't think I would be alive if it wasn't for this program, you know. I just want to tell you that so that you remember when you're in this room and you don't leave before the miracle. You know, look at the situation and weigh it against the serenity prayer. Look at the steps and let God let him infuse your life and change your life and make you who he wants you to be. Don't live in despair. Joy is right here waiting for you. It's right here waiting for you. You know, there's a story in the big book that I really love. And it says right in this phrase, it's not a story, it just says this phrase, there are some of us who have picked up our beds and walked, you know. And it's taken from this biblical story about the man who sat by the roadside. This man who sat by the roadside, he was probably like me, sitting in these rooms for almost 15 years, broken, you know, angry, resentful, jealous, all these fears, self-centered fear, just sticking with fear, couldn't move for fear, just low self-esteem. And the master said, do you want to be well? And he probably had all the same excuses I have. And the master said to him, once again, do you want to be well? And he had another excuse, you know. And the master had to come back to him the last time and said, do you really want to be well? And I think sometimes it takes us a long time to move from here to there to realize that we really do want to be well. We want to be well. We may not know how to get from here to there, but we want to be well. But here comes this program that Dr. That Dr. Bob and Bill started that said, here are 12 suggested steps if you pick up your bed and walk, and for us the 12 suggested steps are our bed, pick them up one day at a time. Pick them up one moment at a time. Pick them up and make them so much a part of your life that you can rise and shine and have the glory of God infuse you on a daily basis. Thank you.